Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast. I'm Sam Engels and I'm here at the AMS Neve headquarters in Burnley with their chief analogue designer, Robin Porter. Robin, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You've actually been at Neve, as it was, and now AMS Neve, on and off since 1971, I believe. Yes, the 5th of September. Few people know this company and its products like you do. I wonder if I could ask you to tell us a little bit about that history with the company that you have. I just started there as a tea boy. It's a very, very fascinating company. Up until that point, I you know, sort of worked for different companies and they had all this sort of structural thing where the management never talked to the people that were working on the shop floor and uh, also you had clock cars to clock in and out. It was very regimented and Neve was nothing like that. Neve was completely open. You had no clock cars, you were trusted and also you could speak to anybody within the company freely, even Rupert, um, which I found um, to be absolute absolute revelation uh, to what I'd experienced before. So I immediately really liked the company and also because I played in bands and because I had to fix people's equipment that goes wrong because um, my father was a, ran a radio and television shop and I picked up a little bit of, of electronics and just enough to be um, dangerous, as it were. Um, but so working for this electronics company that made this audio equipment was um, it's like a manna made from heaven, really, and it wasn't that, way, it wasn't that far away from where I lived. Um, so I got more and more interested in it and... Uh, um, I decided to leave in 1975 and actually go and get a degree in electronics so I could further my career at the company. I had a brief interlude at another audio company when I finished university. It was in 1978. Um, but I went back to work for Neve again because it had that, that wonderful uh, thing I was talking to you about, about being free and, and being you being trusted and being able to input ideas and things like that. It was at the time of uh, 1977, 1978, pretty much it ruled the world um, when it came to um, professional recording consoles. Uh, everybody aspired uh, to um, an eve and uh, they were very incredibly expensive um, pieces of equipment but um, you know they were the best um, in the world. And you actually worked with Rupert Neve on the design of several pieces of equipment yes um uh i as i was a t-boy um early on i didn't really work on any of the 8028 8038 48 uh 58 68 78 consoles they'd pretty much been mainly designed by then but i worked with rupert when i returned to neve from university i first project with him was on a little suitcase mixer which was to be used solely for broadcasting for people that were on the road doing broadcast programs. I got the job of designing some of the channel strip and then incorporated some of Rupert's designs for the microphone amplifier and then uh, working out the system detail of actually how the mixer went together. And then very shortly after that, I worked with Rupert on um, the Air Montserrat recording console. Um, which had been sort of the brainchild of Rupert, um, Jeff Emmerich and George Martin from Air Studios. 
and they wanted um, a really special recording console that uh, would be better than anything else that had ever been built. I mean, Neve made a very good recording console at the, at the time, which was the 8078, uh, but George felt, and Jeff Emmerich felt, they wanted something a bit better than that. <coughs> Rupert uh, set about doing this design, which was completely and utterly revolutionary in audio at the time. Up until that point, you had these audio companies and they all had little R&D departments where analog engineers would design their own audio building blocks. Now, the Air Montserrat console went away from that design and started to use IC. These ICs, which were 5534 when it was made by Philips, had much better specification than anything that any of the audio companies had managed to produce uh, by that time. And also, they were, they were a lot cheaper as well. So, um, Rupert, this design was the first design um, that Rupert had done with the 5534. If you can put it in a, in a context, the, the 5534 basically laid the groundwork for pretty much what all analog electronics uh, from there on in became and still to this day the the 5534 op amp and the 5532 op amps are still used um, quite uh, quite considerably also um, Jeff Emmerich had had noticed that uh, in, in recording studios that had large large studios, um, which were some way away from the control rooms, that you could get a degradation of the audio signals from the microphones. Rupert, again, developed a first in that console, which was uh, remotely controlled mic preamplifiers, where the preamplifiers were not in the console, but they were out in the studio. So the microphones could have very short leads, and then the microphone signal was amplified up by that amplifier and then driven to the console at line level. So therefore, you wouldn't get any hum induced and you wouldn't get any capacitance problems because the signal was at a much higher level. So a lot of these concepts that were pioneered in the Air Montserrat console are still very current in Neve products today. They are, yes. And specifically in the product that we're here to talk about today because it's... This year marks the 20th anniversary of the 88R console, which does feature such things as remote-controlled mic preamps. It's been 20 years since the launch of this console, which was, has been a milestone in AMS Neve's history. How much of a departure was the 88R from previous console designs, and how much was it sort of built on earlier designs? The predecessor to the 88R was the V-Series, and that started out life in about 1982 with the V1 and then in about 1983 had the V3 and then in 1987 I believe I think the VR came out the V1 technology was um, based on uh, the 51 series uh, MOSFET amplifier design with fairly high power rails we then changed to the V3 which was a design where we were back to using plus or minus 16 volt audio rails and uh, the 5532 and the 5534. Obviously the difference between the V3 and the VR was the VR had recall on it. Um, it was the same circuitry, audio circuitry, but with, with recall on it. So the 88R had to follow the V series. And I 
pretty much instantly knew that I couldn't really just invent another recording console that just did the same thing as the VR. However, I didn't want to design a console that was a completely different design philosophy either. Neve had sold a lot of VR consoles and they were used in a lot of recording studios and in very high high profile recording studios as well. A lot of engineers had used those consoles and a lot of producers had used those consoles so they were familiar with them as well. So I wanted to uh, design a console that had the familiarity of the V-series console, but brought some new technologies and new designs to it to enhance it, to push it forward, as to, you know, to be an, an, a recording console that would last whoever bought it another 20 years before they might have to think about having to uh, buy a, another uh, recording console. So what were the new developments that made the ADR different from the VR then? I did a lot of touring of uh, recording studios um, to get their, their take on what they would like to see. At that time, I was thinking of, a, I was talking about a V4, or sorry, V4R. Um, and with that feedback and also some things that I wanted to do, I started to go away to design a console. I think the major, major things that were, were needed really was that it had to have a 5.1 monitor because up until that point, all consoles that were offered by Neva or any of the other manufacturers, you could buy systems that you could bolt onto them that would allow you to monitor and mix 5.1 but they were bolt-ons, you know, and they cost, cost you more money than the sort of standard. But I wanted the 88R from the get-go to be able to, to not only monitor 5.1, but to be able to mix 5.1 as well. That was one of the, the major, you know, sort of milestones of it. And the second set of milestones was, as well, in the automation, the automation had to be a bit more accomplished than the automation of the flying faders that was was on the um, the VR console, and by that what I meant was that not only was the large fader automated, but the small fader was automated at the same time as well, and this would allow for a, a lot more power in mixing, in that you had the channel path and the monitor path in these mixing modes with with automation. The third thing was to design a console that was more reliable than uh, the V as well and would last a lot longer because I realised quite early on that these consoles cost a lot of money and obviously for a studio to invest, it's a big price ticket item and so it was very, very important that they were buying something that would last them a long time. So um, there was a big review in components that we used for the um, for the 88R um, as opposed to the V as well. I also wanted to make the 88R more acoustically transparent within the control room as well to the VR. One of the things that came came up when talking about the V4 to our customers was a conversation I'd had with an engineer at a and in, uh, in Los Angeles who said, I'd I don't understand why you don't go back to 
um, a remote mic preamplifier as well because of the fact that the technical specification is bettered and also an awful lot of the actual microphone preamplifiers on the console don't get used. A lot of engineers and producers have their own favourite um, microphone preamplifiers so I thought to myself well you could have a system where you had two line inputs module and that could be used as um, a line input return from um, the multi-tracks or the door, 1998, 1999, when I was looking at this, so still, multi-tracks were still being used, door hadn't uh, uh, taken over completely, but if you have a line input where you uh, return the door signal to for mixing, or they could be synthesizer inputs or whatever, and you had another line input which is driven from a, a remote mic preamplifier, then what that allowed you to do was to order a console and it could be, I don't know, it could be loaded, could be a 60-channel console and that could be loaded with 24 microphone um, channel strips and then it could be um, uh, 36 of them could be double-line inputs and you could have 36 remote mic preamplifiers as well. Technology um, since the Montserrat consoles have moved on greatly and no longer did we have the phantom power um, the, uh, the gain control uh, like we did on Monster App, but now that could be um, Ethernet connection um, or uh, an RS-232 or whatever you wanted to do to communicate between the console computer and the microphone preamplifiers which were out in the, in the studio. And this became incredibly appealing to an awful lot of, of early adopters of the ATAR. Another area is redesigning the meter system as well. So we didn't have to use um, plasma displays, which we we had to up until that point because they were becoming um, very expensive and they're also, <laughs> they run at 250 volts. So redesigning uh, the meter system to have a, a large LED bar graph uh, system, which had an awful lot more modes on it than a plasma di display system had, um, was a good thing. So with all those things combined, and also um, the fact that we'd also included more cut and boost on the equaliser, more frequency selection on the equaliser, more sensitivity on the thresholds on the compressors, more gain makeup, all these things that we've been asked for that we, we changed uh, to make the final product which became the 88R. So I think in terms of Sonics, the 88R probably has more in common with the with the V series, obviously, than it does with earlier Neve consoles. And yes, from what it I does, understand, yeah. you would put a lot of that down to the difference between the principle of voltage mixing as used in the early consoles and current mixing as used in the later ones. Could you explain a little bit about what that means? Yes, before I'd just like to make a caveat about that. Earlier Neve designs obviously weren't op-amped. Um, later, li later on they were, the op-amps crept into uh, the, the, the classic Neve designs, but they weren't fully embraced, um, whereas on the, on the V and the 88R they were. Because you were using these new op-amps and these new technologies of balanced input systems devices and output devices, this meant that you didn't have to have to use transformers anymore. Um, transformers are great for a lot of reasons but unfortunately they cause distortion and they cause frequency response problems and they're bulky and they're expensive and everything 
uh, that goes with it. And so if you can get rid of them, as many as possible, then you're going to produce a design which is going to sound more clearer and more transparent than the earlier earlier designs. And that's the philosophy that Rupert was heading for um, with any, any of his designs. We did retain one transformer, that was a microphone transformer, and I'll come on to the design of the microphone amplifier that was uh, used in the 88R. But voltage mixing is, is uh, an interesting way of doing uh, mixing, but it has, it has its drawbacks in that you end up with a very low level which has to be amplified back up again. And because of that, it's, it's around about minus 40 dBU, which is fairly low, and that's a microphone signal actually it's that and if that micro, microphone signal is running all the way along um, a bus bar along a console and some of these consoles they're starting to get sort of three or four meters long so you, you, it becomes a challenge not to start picking up radio frequencies and um, hum fields uh, when you're using uh, bus bars that long and then having to amplify up the signal in order to get it back to a line level. And so there had been a, a change in philosophy in the sort of late 70s um, throughout the audio industry of uh, starting to use what's known as virtual earth mixing technology. Virtual earth mixing is often referred to as current mixing as opposed to voltage mixing. And basically it allows you uh, to mix uh, channels together and they are less susceptible to hum pickup and radio frequency which means that you can effectively make bigger recording consoles that do not suffer from noise pickup and considering that you can find Neve consoles that are 96 channels and now I think you know 96 channels ends up being something like about four meters uh, four or five meters worth of recording console. It's very, very long physically. Mm. So um, using balanced virtual earth mixing negates the problems that you get with, with voltage mixing. There is, um, however, an interesting phenomenon that um, comes with it where voltage mixing does have a different sound. And it's, I think it's, it's not the imparting sound that makes a classic Neve console like an 8028 or a, a 38 or a 4.8 sound like it does, it has an effect. And it's, a, it's an odd effect where it almost gives you this wonderful sort of warm analog hue that just puts a smile on your face. You know, it's just, that's the only way I can describe it. I'm not saying that that is the thing that drives the sound of those consoles because because I think the thing that also drives the sound of those consoles is the transformers and also the op amps which were the discrete op amps that Neve designed that were used within those designs and also the other thing that would have had an effect on the sound would have been the, the, the overall system architecture as well would have, would have created it as well but Nevertheless, it does have that analog hue about it. Whereas with the virtual earth balance bus system, it's more clinical, it's more precise, but it has a sort of a darker sound. It's hard to describe, but it's darker. And it's also 
as we were trying to achieve with the ATAR, we we're trying to achieve a console that really imparts nothing, you know, to the recording. And then it's up to the engineer or the producer to add the equalization or the compression or whatever they want to do, not to have any equalization or compression or sound that the, that the console is producing at the time. So the current ATA-RS is described as having audio performance beyond 24192 digital. Yes. Um, what does that actually mean in practice? Well, what it means is that you, you basically you have to have a bandwidth more than 100k. The dynamic range of the console as well, the maximum output of the console is uh, plus 26 dBU. And generally the noise of one of those consoles is about minus... 86, 87 dBU, that's its, that's its noise level. So you just have to add those two uh, units together to get the, uh, the dynamic range. So you've got this dynamic range um, of about, 100, it's about 112, 110, 112 dB, dynamic range at, at uh, 100K. And that's what that it actually equates to. That's a staggering achievement to to get those kind of figures on a console with maybe 96 inputs. Yes. Um, is that mostly down to the large-scale sort of design philosophy or is it just relentless attention to detail in the small things that matters? It's both, really. You try and tailor all of the op-amp circuits to have the lowest noise and uh, that's achieved fundamentally by what type of op-amp you're using in what circuit but also the values of components that are put around the op-amp in order to be able to make it perform to the design that you want. And generally speaking, the lower the component values, the better the noise. That's one, one area. And of course, the other area is you're not only trying to design these circuits so that the white noise is as low as you can possibly get it, but also that these circuits are not susceptible to radiated noise. Very, very careful design considerations are made on where and how you screen, how you use the console metalwork to screen, how you use a naught volt system in order to be able to achieve near technically perfect noise floors. I'd like the dynamic range to be better. It gets better very incrementally small amounts each year because you get new op-amps designed and you sort of new techniques for uh, making them. But uh, th that sort of amount of dynamic range is perfectly acceptable, I think, for recorded music, speech or anything, really. The human ear has a huge dynamic range, you know, so uh, the, the, the more that you could tailor a machine to be able to take advantage of that, the better. So there is a little bit of compression there, uh, from an analogue console or an analogue system, but there's nothing you can do about it. They can't reinvent the law of physics. It's, that's, the, that's the way it is. Uh, one thing I will say uh, for uh, digital technologies, of course, is that a uh, digital recording console doesn't have any mixed bus noise. <laughs> You're never, ever fighting that problem with a digital console, but with an analogue console, you are. It was interesting to hear you compare the ATA-R with digital consoles there, mm. because... In a lot of the markets where you would once have found large format analog consoles, those have now gone over to digital, for instance, in live sound and a lot of broadcast mm. contexts. Mm. But the ATAR still reigns supreme in some environments, such as uh, film score mixing, mm. for example. Mm. Why do you think those markets still prefer to have an analog 
console? I think it goes back really to when the first digital consoles started to appear. The ones that were specifically designed to go into recording studios as opposed to the ones that had been specifically designed to go into broadcasters. Don't forget that Neve are trailblazers with digital consoles. They were the first to produce a digital console in conjunction with the BBC. Um, the engineers at Neve worked very, very, very hard to produce a console that would sound good and could replace an analog console and could get the studios to see the advantage of those consoles. But the first digital consoles were 44.1 kilohertz, I think 20-bit. From an from audio point of view, that's all right, but not great, you know. But I'm not knocking the technology or anything like that, but that was all that could be achieved at that time, try and make a viable digital recording console. Well, one area where you might expect digital to have an edge now is in modern surround formats where we're doing immersive audio with things like Dolby Atmos. Mm. Obviously, the 88RS is still fundamentally a 5.1 mm. console. Oh, yeah. Does that make it limited when it comes to mixing in these modern formats? Well, fortunately, the use of the 88R doesn't really bring itself into that contention that Dolby Atmos format is mainly geared to dubbing as opposed to recording. If you go onto a big scoring stage, they have these big stages with these big analog consoles on them. Their only task is to capture that orchestra against time code of the queue. The way that's achieved is that you will obviously use all the console inputs and then all the microphones up using the console microphone preamplifiers, and then that will be mixed onto stems and then formatted onto a 5.1 composite mix, and then it'll be mixed down into stereo. And all of that will happen in a single pass. Sometimes the, the, the film company will want the multi-track, they'll want the stems, they'll want the 5.1 composite, and they'll want the two-track mix, okay? And so that's all done on probably two Pro Tools machines synced together that's presented to the dubbing stage. The dubber and the engineers within the dubbing system, the producers, the film and everything like that will make the decision of whether or not they use the 5.1 composite, use all the stems and mix it on the dubber, or whether or not the balance of the orchestra is so good that they just use the stereo mix down for it. But what it means is that ATAR doesn't generally get involved in uh, Dolby Atmos, um, even though um, I am very aware of what the market wants and so I'm always continue looking at how to apply um, this sort of stuff uh, to the ATAR. One of the problems with the Dolby Atmos of course is the formats of course exploded from just effectively six tracks to well I think probably the basics for an, the audio side of a film it's probably 12 or 14 tracks, you know. In order to get 12 or 14 tracks that will be sent to loudspeakers with the, all the processing on them, that's a big ask in analog land. That's a lot of electronics. And of course, with a lot of electronics, that brings with it noise and heat and all of those things that you're continually fighting, you know. So 
Dolby Atmos. It's a, a difficult thing to do in sort of analog land, really. Um, however, that's not to stop an ATAR being able to do that. And at the other end of the scale, I mean, a lot of sound on sound readers and people like me will probably never get to use an ATAR in anger, but there are a lot of smaller AMS Neve products that draw directly on the technology mm. in the ATAR. So can you expand a little bit on what else in the Neve range has come from this this mixer? So, yeah, not only does the, the technology of the ATAR uh, trickle down um, through the Genesis and through the 8424, but also into our outboard gear as well. So notably 8801, the 8802 and the 8803, which have um, all the same technologies and all the same sort of um, quality control standards um, that we would apply, you know, to, to the um, ATHR technology. Yes, yeah, so like I say, many of us probably will never sit in front of an ATHR, but many more of us are likely to sit in front of a Neve Genesis or Genesis Black console. Mm. Uh, you've described that to me as being 80% of an ATAR. It is, yeah. Um, what's the key similarities and differences there? Um, well, a Genesis, uh, an ATAR uh, dual path, okay, Genesis dual path. ATAR has dynamics and EQ and filters. Genesis has dynamics, EQs and filters. Genesis has effectively eight auxiliaries. Um, ATAR effectively eight auxiliaries. ATAR has you know, monitor path, and so is the Genesis. Um, it has automation. Both consoles have automation. Both consoles have comprehensive metering, reverb returns. I'd, I'd say the only major difference with an ATAR is uh, obviously it still retains its 48-track multi-track busing. That's not such a a big deal these days because obviously we are direct outing into a, a Pro Tools. So the, the need for multi-track buses has gone away because obviously they were, they were designed when you had analog tape machines and you had to commit different microphones onto one track. You know, that, that was the, the way it worked. But these days you, you don't have to. But the similarities between them are, are immense. And also I'd say an actual fact, because the Genesis is more digitally controlled than the 88R, it's got a lot of power there when you're doing snapshots and recall and, and those sort of disciplines. So they are very similar. I mean, one of the other things with the Genesis was this, this thing where you don't have the EQ physically in the channel strip, or you don't have the dynamics physically in the channel strip. You can, And again, that comes from what I was talking about earlier on, about the fact that an immense amount of the EQs and dynamics on any of these big analog consoles, you don't use the equalizers and they're not using all the dynamics. So the thing that Genesis does is that it allows you to fit the digitally controlled EQs and dynamics within the console as and when as many as you need. So therefore, it gives you a much better price point to be able to, say, buy a standard console with no EQs and dynamics and then use the EQs and dynamics you've acquired over time, use the EQs and dynamics that you've got in the door, and then at some point when you've earned some money off the console, 
buy yourself some EQ and dynamic cassettes and off you go. So it's sort of like a, an expandable console uh, with a 88R. You're buying the old school way of doing it where you get everything. And some of those expansion options are actually available as products in their own right, aren't they? Yeah, in the microphone preamplifiers, yes. Um, the ATR has two types of microphone preamplifier. Well, it has, sorry, it has three. Um, it obviously has the very good quality microphone preamplifier within the console, which you can choose either to have or not to have. And then you've got the Air Monster Mic Pre, which is a remote controlled mic pre, which is controlled from the, from the console. And we have the 1081. Um, which can be controlled from the console. Typically, a 1081 would be in a rock and roll studio because it has that lovely tailored sound for rock and roll, which I liken to, um, you know, a Stones recording or something like that. Whereas the Montserrat, much more open, much more clinical, much more orchestra recording or jazz trio quartet type of recording. And those, that's where the 88R sort of flexibility comes from. And I think something that, isn't always appreciated about Neve products is that everything you make is still manufactured here in England in your factory in yes. Burnley where we're now sitting. Yeah. Um, a lot of manufacturers at the moment are struggling with supply chain issues. They're trying to source units from China or components from other mm. countries mm. and they're having shipping problems. Does this mean Neve has been less affected by those sorts of problems? Yeah, I think we have. And I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, we are affected. I mean, I can't deny that. I mean, nobody's not affected. I mean, uh, where it's been very good for us is because our manufacturing is all here, that means we have total control over it, which means that we, we don't have anywhere in China that's making any of the sub-assemblies or anything like that. They're all made here, both the sub-assemblies and the final putting together. So therefore, we don't have any issues where the people in China can't get the components or then they can't make it because they don't have enough labour because of this pandemic and because they shut their factory from time to time. And then, and they also don't forget those Chinese manufacturers that are making boards or making bits of equipment. Audio companies aren't their only customer. They may have also on the go making boards for, for flat screen TVs or they might be making... Uh, PCB boards that are, are are going into washing machines, you know. So there's there's that great bone of contention of having to juggle which customer you service. And we don't have any of that because we are totally and utterly in control of our manufacturing. And again, uh, after that, of course, then there's been a lot of problems about importing and goods staying on dock size because they don't have exactly the right paperwork so we don't have that that part of it and neither nor, nor do we have the transport part of it where we find um, the issues are for us our components um, this is going to go on for about another year I think we've got another year of this before this and it will be everything everything will start to start working again and components will become uh, more more obtainable well, thank you, Robin. This has been absolutely fascinating. And having seen around the factory today, I can attest that uh, we haven't reached the end of new product development based on the ATAR just yet. There's some very interesting things in the pipeline here. But I wonder if I could finish by um, returning to you and your career. You 
obviously had the opportunity to learn from Rupert Neve himself and mm. some other mm. legendary equipment designers. Mm. Are you, what are you doing at Neve to, to pass on that, that knowledge to a new generation? Well, everything, really. Everything that um, I was taught and learned um, will be passed on. Um, there are some quite black arts that uh, have to be passed on. Uh, transformer design um, is one of them, you know, and that, that's, that's one thing we're, we're quite hot on. But um, I think it's, I think most of the engineers that work here, analog engineers that work here, are very, very, very knowledgeable. In actual fact, quite a lot of them know more than I do. Um, but what I think is worth saying is in parting is I started off working at Neve and as I said I was a tea boy I found the people there to be incredibly friendly and incredibly helpful and any question you asked you know it was answered it, you weren't dismissed as being you're not relevant so why should I should I tell you anything that's very important that you never do that to anybody here any question they ask you answer it to what you know and you pass that information onto them I wouldn't, Rupert never took me under his wing or anything like that. I mean, I didn't see very much of Rupert. He was always, 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 you must push yourself and make something the best as you can possibly do, you know. And so, therefore, I was never afraid to ask somebody, do you think this circuit is the best way of going? You know, and it could be a discussion about, look, the noise here is going to be this amount, if you put a pad here, you're going to chuck away some gain and then you'll end up with it being more noisy. So why don't you do this where you put the pad before a certain amplifier? And so therefore, uh, that will be how you did it. And Rupert would talk about this stuff and would discuss the ways in which this was the best thing to do. Um, but without a doubt, it was always do your best and always push the audio envelope as hard as you can, as far out as you can, to improve on what you had to make something as completely transparent audio-wise as you possibly can. That was, that was the philosophy, and that's what we try to do here, here now. Um, and I think, that, I think that philosophy has proved to be very good. You know, Neve is renowned for making and designing equipment which performs very well and is perceived to be the top of the game. That's right. I think if you get to use an 88R, if you're one of the lucky few, or even one of these other products that's the spin-off from the same design, then you're getting the fruits of that philosophy that was started by Rupert Neve when he founded the company. Thank you very much, Robin. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. You've been listening to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast with me, Sam Ingalls, and it only remains for me to thank my guest, Robin Porter of AMS Neve. Thank you, Robin. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. And just before you go, let me point you to the soundonsound.com forward slash podcast website page where you can explore what's playing on our other channels. <laughs>